Welcome to Vanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with Peter Evers. And on today's edition of the podcast, we're going to focus specifically on a program that BAMSI is using to try to help issues surrounding drug addiction in the greater Brockton area, but also talk a little bit more generally about the state of addiction as well. And everything's kind of gotten uh, dwarfed by the COVID-19 pandemic in health circles, and certainly addiction is one of those issues. Welcome in right now, the president and CEO of VAMSI, Peter Evers. Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Chris. And uh, another timely uh, conversation, if you ask me. You know, we talk a lot about this COVID drag, this idea that there are going to be things that are going to be with us way after we have got, after we have come to be able to live, I think, with um, with COVID and mental health issues and addiction issues, I'm sure, fit into that category because there are many people who have been socially isol- isolated for the last year many people who haven't had the benefit of the hands-on treatment that has been available before we all went down into into lockdown. And we know that this is a disease like any other, a chronic disease. We know that the uh, that the arc of recovery is possible, um, but we know that it's been interrupted. And so we're very lucky today to be joined by a director of operations from our community team, Jess Almeida. Hi, Jess. How are you doing? Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Hi, Chris. Thanks. And I know that really um, you oversee most of those programs that deal with the issue of uh, addiction. Uh, Of course, we do co-occurring disorder treatment in the clinic as well in terms of mental health and uh, substance use disorder. Um, But in many ways, uh, your staff are really at the front end of um, active addiction. And I know Chris mentioned that the, we want to talk a little bit about the program and the needle exchange program because it's a really good topic to sink our teeth into. But I think it's probably best to talk a little about the notion of harm reduction. You know, I think we've come a long way since just say no, uh, but that was a long, long time ago. We should have we should have got a lot further. But this whole idea of harm reduction, I'd love to discuss with you and Chris. This idea, the principle of harm reduction, as far as I no, is that it just accepts that people use illicit drugs. And by the way, you know, if you go back to the Mayans, if you go back to the Aztecs, you know, they were distilling cactus juice thousands and thousands of years ago and fermenting it. So it isn't a new thing. It's with us. And harm reduction really accepts that, look, people use illicit drugs. Let's get over that. And once you've done that, and once you see it as a disease, you move into a different realm, which is how do you help people not? How do you help people use less? How do you help people um, get on with their lives so that their addiction isn't running their lives? And that's a big switch to flip. And tell me a bit about why there's so much um, anxiety about that, such a lack of trust in our communities. Um, Some communities are very welcome of it. Others are very uh, protective of the whole idea. They seem, if you ask me, and I guess this is a political statement, but they seem to want to ignore the fact that people are dying of overdoses in their cities and towns. uh, And they seem okay with that. And if they're not paying attention to the idea of some of the things that actually work with people, I think that's a disservice to the people who elect them. We think of harm reduction in in really simple terms is, is is kind of the, the whole social work philosophy is meeting people where they're at um, and meeting people where they're at in their addiction. Um, 
in providing them with what they need to stay alive and to stay safe until they're ready for treatment. Uh, that's what I really feel is, is really the root of harm reduction. Um, and that's what we try to do at the COPE Center or the staff try to do at the COPE Center. Um, unfortunately, I think we've learned over the years that just obviously just say no doesn't work. Um, that people, as much as we as family members or friends or society want them to get treatment, um, people need to be ready it, to get treatment on their own. Um, and that's when it's going to work when they're ready. Um, and it may take them 10 times to go into treatment. Um, so, so the harm reduction really, I feel comes into place, you know, is a really big part of, of helping people who are active in their addiction to, to keep them free of, you know, diseases to keep them alive. Um, because when they are clean, you know, then, then they're going to have something else that they're going to have to deal with. Um, yeah, to me, you know, zero tolerance programs and, you know, just say no, just don't work. Um, their programs are developed by people that have no understanding of um, the way that addiction works. And, you know, I remember back when the pandemic um, was in its worst moments and uh, the state of New Hampshire was being pressured to close their liquor stores. And there was rumors they're going to close their liquor stores. And everybody was laughing at people who were flooding the liquor stores, trying to get the, the last possible, um, uh, you know, things of vodka and wine because they were going to close. But a lot of those individuals, um, you know, w would need to go into detox if they're going to stop mm -hmm. drinking. Mm -hmm. And you think about that in the context of this as well, where a person who is using heroin or fentanyl, they can't just stop. Like they can't just say, Hey, you right. stop. I mean, you, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And you know, to suggest that it could take place that way is not, um, you know, wanting to address the, the problem. That kind of brings us into a discussion about the, the needle exchange uh, program and kind of works its way into some of the other conversations we've been having about HIV and AIDS and, you know, other um, things that come from using um, uh, needles. And take us, you know, through what the needle exchange program is and how is it a you know, necessity, in your view, to address things on a multiple faceted, um, from a multiple faceted approach? Yeah. So needle exchange, in, I think people need to think of it as one part of our syringe services programming. So yes, we give um, people clean syringes. And the good public health is that somebody has a clean syringe for every single time they need to inject. Um, so because of the fentanyl now, it's really in our area, it's really no longer heroin, it's fentanyl people need to inject more often in order to prevent them from getting sick and going into withdrawals. So not only do we provide clean syringes, we provide clean um, work. So clean cookers, clean cotton. People don't always know that if someone's reusing a cotton or a cotton that's not sterile, they can get um, diseases from that. Um, they can get, you know, it's not just the hep C, and the HIV, they can also get heart infections. They can get other infections, blood infections from the injection, injecting. Um, we provide them with sterile water 
um, you know, people who a lot of folks that we service are homeless and may use like stream water or river water. And that again can carry a lot of um, bacteria and cause infections. Um, we've had multiple people who've had to have um, limbs amputated because of the infections that they've gotten. Um, so, it, you know, it's a real bigger picture. And it, so it's a public health, it's a bigger public health issue. Um, uh, but along with providing clean um, syringes, clean works, um, we're also providing a safe place for these folks to come. Um, most of the folks are marginalized. They're not welcome in a lot of places. And if they walk into our doors, you know, for the 110th time and say, you know what, I'm ready for treatment, our staff's going to get them into treatment. If they walk into, you know, someplace else, they may not be welcome because of, you know, past behaviors if they went someplace else. So they don't have that access to treatment like they do. You know, we treat people, it doesn't matter what they've done. You know, they walk into our doors and want treatment. We're going to do, our staff's going to do whatever they need to do to get these folks into treatment. We yeah. offer testing. Um, we offer wound care. We offer wound care supplies. We offer vaccinations when we're able to do that. We're, we offer getting them to medical treatment. If someone comes in with a wound that really, you know, our nurse can't um, do anything with, you know, we'll get them to the ER or get them to get them to the neighborhood health center. Um, so we're providing, you know, much more than just handing people a syringe and sending them on their way. But I think that's what people hear, right, mm -hmm. um, Jess? And if I can just go back to the whole idea of harm reduction and, and, and sort of braid it into this conversation as well. You know, it is typical in chronic diseases that the the path to recovery is not linear, linear right? And indeed, with the, with the issue of substance use disorder, it is not unusual for somebody to, you know, pick up and then get back into treatment, pick up, get back into treatment. And that is a process of recovery. And, you know, I remember I've told Chris this story before, but um, I once did an article for, for the uh, Dimmock Detox in Roxbury for the Boston Globe. And we interviewed a lot of people in the program. And the last thing in the article was we asked, you know, James about the detox. And he said, oh, it's a great place. I've been here 28 times. And that was the end of the article. And I thought, oh, you know, what people take away from that is that people keep coming back to the detox. But the message is exactly what you said. People have to be ready. And in a harm reduction model, we recognize that we have to get people to that place. We have to give them every opportunity to see that there is um, another way, if you like. And oftentimes these, these folks present with a depressive disorder, some kind of depression, a bipolar, something like that. So yes. there has to be uh, all sorts of treatment. So I guess the question I'm asking you is that it really is a societal issue as well, because you're more likely to think that that person is making a choice yes. as opposed to that person who, ha who has diabetes, who you don't think is making a choice. And then finally, there is a consequence to us public health when people are not in their best place and they're addicted because there is an additional crime that comes with that. And we should talk about that because you can't just shun away people's react reaction to that. You've got to see it and explain it in terms of overall public health. That as a, a community is better when you are when you are using evidence based practice that show that recovery is possible and real and will happen. Yeah. Hmm. 
So, yeah, I, I, I do think we, we've come with the opiate epidemic in Massachusetts. And I think that the, all the attention that's gotten over the past several years and the advocacy work that's been done, um, I, I'm going to say mo a lot by parents. Um, you know, we've, we've gotten more treatment facilities open in the state. Um, our governor is really, um, you know, pro-treatment, pro, you know, he, he understands it. Um, and he knows that it's not, you know, like you said, Peter, a choice. Um, you know, so I think we've, we've made progress. Um, but there are still, you know, pockets of people who, you know, that's their belief. Well, you know, they chose to do drugs. So they're just, uh, you know, they don't want to stop or, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody is born or, you know, when they say, what do you want to do when you grow up? They say, I want to be an addict. Nope. You know, this in is something that yeah. that's happened to people, you know, maybe they had trauma in their life or, you know, they got on pain medications for, you know, a broken leg. You know, there's so many different reasons. It's not like someone just woke up one day and said, I want to be an addict. Hmm. Right. And I think in the harm reduction world, it is seeing the person exactly that seeing the person who had all of these dreams, you know, like everybody else did, yeah. um, but this disease got in the way. And I think telling that story more and more, and I, I did, you know, Chris and I've talked about this on other podcasts that, you know, famous people, people who are well known for what they do as individuals who then say, you know, I've struggled with addiction or mental health. It's mm -hmm. a really big statement that people can get behind. And I guess, the last thing I'd say about that is that when you, those people talk like that, they usually have had either a family member who has struggled with alcohol, and oftentimes there's a distinction made between drugs and alcohol, which mm -hmm. is another conversation probably uh, to have, uh, but they don't associate the same addiction to their uncle who struggled with alcohol abuse uh, use back in the 1980s as somebody on the street who's struggling with heroin. And of course, we know that all of those receptors are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I, I think there's a much more, you know, bigger stigma around, you know, drugs. And I think the other thing people, you know, need to understand is most people don't, you know, start with putting a needle in their arm. You know, it starts with, you know, maybe pills or crushing a pill and snorting it. Um, you know, and getting to the injection point is, you know, part of the, you know, addiction yeah. that happens. Yeah. Um, but again, it's not like somebody chose to do that. They're doing that because if they don't, they're going to be so sick. You, I mean, the way it was described is like the flu times 10. Yeah. And you just imagine, you know, people, I think everyone's probably had the flu at some point and you can't even like reach across the table to get a drink. You feel so horrible. And, you know, to, you'd probably do anything to make that go away. I think, so, you know, I'm sorry, Jess. I, I think a big part of the, the stigma that Peter is describing is legality versus illegality. And um, alcohol is legal, and um, you know, drugs outside of uh, cannabis are not unless they're prescribed by your doctor. And um, you know, that's a, a broader topic of, of discussion, but 
you know, you look at even, um, you know, when people would wear masks and they wouldn't wear masks during COVID. And when there was a mask order, people would wear a mask. The mask orders lifted, no mask anymore, regardless of, um, you know, whether you're vaccinated or not vaccinated. It, it's there is still a um, you know, people like to go by the quote unquote rules and they feel that those people who quote unquote those people who are not going by the rules and using drugs is somehow worse than um, than alcohol. And I want to bring it back um, a little bit to the to the needle exchange. And I think that it's important to to kind of expand upon the harm reduction tactic and how that is actually creating an environment where individuals are more likely to seek treatment and um, are going to, you know, move beyond their addiction. And addiction can mean, you know, so many different things and so many different problems for for individuals. Because I think when when politics gets into it, everybody likes to make things very simple and have simple answers to complex problems. When addiction is one of those very complex problems and harm reduction falls into that category. I think when people think about a needle exchange program, they think that Bamsey or another individual or entity is making it easier for people to um, to utilize drugs. And therefore, that's causing the, the problem because you're providing an avenue for that to, um, to take place. And I think it's really important that we address that head on and um, you know, talk about how that is not the the case and that yes you know there there isn't the a needle exchange being provided um a it's the humane thing to do to help human beings no matter what state that they are in um from cradle to the grave if you believe in life you should believe in life um Mm -hmm. and the other piece how in fact is this creating an environment that is more um advantageous to address the drug issue than just saying let uh, let that be, and we're not. We're just going to pretend it's not taking place. Whatever happens, happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I think the big thing that that the uh, pro, the syringe programming provides is again a a trusting place that people can go to. Um, they're able to walk in the door. The staff work a lot with you know building up trust with folks. Um, and having those conversations every time they see them and the conversations, you know, about being safe today and, you know, where are you sleeping tonight? And, um, you know, just building that trust so they have, so they feel like there's a safe place that they can go to. And, and when they're ready, they can, they'll be provided, you know, a referral for treatment or access to treatment. Yeah, I do think, you know, I think about this a lot. And I think, you know, the the recovery community in substance use disorder is one of the most remarkable communities I think I've ever uh, been involved with. Because, I mean, if you think about AA, for instance, NA, and NA, it is the largest non-structured volunteer agency that is entirely um, predicated on volunteers uh, in the world. And... Um, I have, I know so many people who are in recovery and their journey is sustained by the help that they give to people who are not. And, and I think that's what makes it unique because so many people want to support their friends, not even their friends, but other people who struggle. Um, And I don't think you find that in any other 
in any other form of medicine or in, in, in terms of disease. And so providing that harm reduction model, providing needle exchange, providing these opportunities for people who are further along in their journey to have conversations with people who are in the misery of addiction, I think is equally important as anything in the journey of recovery. And if we hadn't built that system, if we just said, we don't care about this, well, first of all, we would have a major public safety, public health issue on our hands. And I would say to those people who just say no, why are you so critical of the harm reduction model? Because we know that your way of doing things has failed time and time and time again, despite the fact that there's been a public health strategy for this for years and years. So I don't know what you think about that, Jessica, but I'm always amazed at that community. Yeah. And, you know, there is evidence. Syringe service program is an evidence based programs. Yeah, they've been studied. They work. Um, I was just looking at a statistic from a fact sheet from the CDC, and it's, you know, people who use syringe services are five times more likely to go into treatment than people who don't. Mm-hmm. So these, these work, right. you know, I know that a lot of people feel it's enabling, um, you know, but it, it's really not. And, and the other thing we provide is um, that I didn't mention is, is Narcan or naloxone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so another part of our, you know, services is making sure that everybody out there who is using opioids have Narcan on them um, because that will reverse an overdose. And, you know, and it's also talking to people about not using alone, um, you know, and now they're finding fentanyl in um, pressed pills. So people may be buying something that they think is an opiate yeah. Or they may be buying something that they think is a stimulant and, and go because they want to stay away from fentanyl or heroin. Yeah. And they're finding that there's actually fentanyl in that as well as in um, crack cocaine. Yeah. So it's really important. We've been having a lot of staff has been having a lot of conversations with folks who, you know, don't normally use heroin and saying, you know what, you need to have Narcan. You need not to use alone because there's recently been some deaths in Plymouth County from people who weren't known to be using um, opioids and, and they were known cocaine users. So it's really that the drug supply um, is really has changed. And, and you know, our, that's another thing our staff does is, is make people aware. Um, so there's just so much that goes into this and, and, it, and just say no is, um, I just find it ridiculous because it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And, and, you know, syringe services is an evidence-based program. It does not promote drug use. It, it gives people the tools that they need to stay safe. It gives people access to treatment every time they walk through that door, if that's what they want, you know, and, and it saves lives and it saves and it keeps people healthy and safe for when, you know, they are able to get clean. I think that's the key point is that there is not any more individuals who are using needles or continuing to use needles as a result of this program. In fact, what it is doing is bringing people in who you are able to develop relationships with um, who may end up seeking treatment as a result of those relationships being developed. 
and you are supplying a safe needle to them for something they're going to be doing anyway. So what it actually does is creates an environment where you know, pretty much each police force in a town the size of, of and I don't want to bring police into this, but for kind of a holistic type of perspective, but um, police and services and first responders, like they, they know and have a good handle on uh, the homeless community and individuals that um, you know may be using drugs and may need um, you know assistance, and this is an avenue in which um, everybody can actually you know work together to create an environment that um, is beneficial for the community. No. Yes, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because the other thing thing that syringe programs does is takes back used syringes. And also, you know, part of our programming is to, you know, walk around the community and pick up used syringes because that is a public safety issue, especially for our first responders, you know, to find, you know, a used syringe, you know, so it does. And, and people may make the assumption, oh, they're just drug users. They're not going to bring back the syringes. They do. They do care about, you know, other people. They do care about, you know, not leaving syringes around for someone to, you know, who may step on it or something. So, you know, these folks do think about other people, you know, and they care and they will bring back, they do bring back syringes. Um, we right. take in hundreds of thousands of syringes, you know, just as many as we give out, if not more. We actually probably take, we take back more than yeah, we give gonna, out. I was yeah. going to say, there's a, it's a strange assumption that it would be needles from the needle exchange program that will be left on the floor. Could you make an assumption that they might not be from there, yeah. and therefore, how do we get those people into the needle exchange? Right. But right. but but again, you know, this is we lead with an emotional spot response to this whole issue. We as a, as a people, um, you know, you may have seen this morning that in Somerville there's a big debate today on whether they're going to have user station use use stations. Uh, now. I can see or hear, should I say, people listen to this saying, oh, my goodness, why would you do that? Go to Germany, go to Frankfurt, see what happens in Frankfurt and take strip away all of your emotional response to that and look at the, as you said before, look at the data, look at the recovery rates, look at how many people are in recovery because they've been able to do that. Look at how many people have a conversation with a professional in those sites. I'm not saying we move to that. But I'm just saying that we should look at everything that has a result which is positive to this terrible disease of addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and why wouldn't we be exercising best practice here? Yeah, I, I totally. In Rhode Island just passed a law for safe injection sites, too. I, I guess they have to have local approval, but yeah. the state. So that should be interesting yeah. to see yeah. how that develops. Yeah. I totally get the you know, the emotional response behind just say no. Like if someone's doing something that it, you view as being harmful to themselves, like you, your natural response is to say, oh, stop, just don't, don't you don't want to harm you. No, don't do it. But, um, you know, as we talk about a lot in this podcast, Peter, the big question always is the why. And a person just can't stop. There's a reason why something is, is taking place. And, you know, if you want to address the amount of opioid deaths in a community, and that is your goal. Um, there are multifaceted ways to go about addressing that. But one of those ways is to provide an environment where individuals are not overdosing because that's how they die. And if you are able to 
in some way regulate the usage or are able to create an environment where you are using with other people, as Jess was describing earlier, it is much like less likely that individuals are going to overdose because very often when they're purchasing products on the street, they are not quite sure what is, well, they're, they're never quite sure what's in there. They're being told what's in there. So to Peter's point, this is something that is, you know, I've talked about before and is highly controversial. But and whenever you talk about you know, legalizing, which is a much bigger step than obviously is, it gets pushed back upon because they're like, no, we don't want more of this. So why do you why do you want to create an environment where you know it's it's easier to um, to do? But the problem, if you want to stop individuals from overdosing, is the fact that it is not regulated. And mm-hmm. what's different different between you know a prescription you receive from your doctor is that it's a regulated amount. And you know what is in there, and um, there is a understanding of that. Now, when you move into an illegal marketplace, it is not regulated and you have no idea what you're actually getting. So what are your thoughts on that, Jess and and Peter as well, where, yeah, obviously it makes sense to tell, you you don't want people to do it. So yeah, you say no, (laughs) but um, (laughs) it's not a realistic response to the problem because the drug issue to a large degree is also supply and demand. And there is demand for these products in an unregulated marketplace i mean it's just laced and dripping with people's emotional response to it but Mm. again i would say look at what works and also by the way look at what doesn't work and enter into you know enter into intellectual conversations with people about a medical model and i always try and refer it back to a medical model what are the best interventions for diabetes, right? So we have some really good drugs. We have actually insulin, which has been a drug for the last, I don't know, was it 80 years or something, which is like a miracle, which by the way, the pharmaceutical companies have made, have tripled the price over the last mm-hmm. year. It's another conversation. But we also have a great deal of education around lifestyle choices. And those two things together, who would argue against that? It's exactly the same here. As we mature as a, as a population, as we understand this as a disease and we know the arc of disease, all we can do is keep pushing and pushing and pushing and saying, these people, somebody once said to me, I, I, I know this is an aside, but I was at Boston Medical Center and somebody came in on a Narcan overdose and the first responder was very frustrated, totally get it and goes, you know, this is the 15th time I brought this person in today. And I said, well, after all, a dead person doesn't recover, do they? This is the 15th time. I understand that. But that somebody's parents is going to be so glad that they get a call saying, we have this person here. They're alive and we have another chance and they have another chance. And as long as we can get um, the buy-in from our communities that these are miracle drugs mm-hmm. and they're miracle interventions that our workers make with these people that bring around recovery, which is a a miracle. If you know what deep addiction is like, it is a miracle. There is no hope at that point when people are at their lowest point. And the hope is the people that surround them with caring and the the drugs that people can take to to save them because that gives us a platform to get people on a journey to recovery. And that's the story that we should be telling. Yeah, and I think we have come out, you know, when Narcan first, 
not when it first came out because it's been out for quite a while, but it kind of when it first went out to the public where, you know, the public could get it. It, it, There was a lot of controversy around that. And then I remember, I think it was the Quincy police um, were one of the first um, police departments who said, we want to carry this. We want this. You know, we want to be able to intervene when we come upon all these overdoses that are happening. And that made a huge difference. And then the Gloucester Police Department did a big thing. You know, we can't arrest our way out of this situation that's happening. And so there has been a lot of change. I remember having a conversation with my my own physician and, you know, tell, he asking me what I do for work. And I've known him for a long time and talking about Narcan. And he said to me, well, you know, doesn't that just make it okay for people to do drugs? I'm like, well, do condoms in school make kids want to have sex i mean it's just it's to me i know i'm in the work so it was a ridiculous statement um but now this physician is actually has an obot clinic so you know he's really evolved in in learned and luckily you know um changed his mind and, and is helping a lot of people so you know i i do think that it can happen um with the legalizing drugs, I don't know if I'll see that, <laughs> you know, but it, it's, it's true. I mean, it, if you look about the prescription drugs, I mean, that's legalized drug use to a big extent. I mean, I think that as a state and a country, we've done a lot with that, with overprescribing and, um, you know, but for a long time, that was like legalized drug use, really. Yeah. And 42% of the people that end up using a needle start with um, prescription drugs. And so that is a total pathway. You're absolutely right. Well, Peter, Jess, thank you so much. That was a uh, really great conversation around a important topic. And I look forward to uh, talking to you both again soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Jessica Almeida, Peter Evers. I am Chris Ryan. Thanks for joining us for the Humanity First podcast. You know, I was thinking it, this would be really good if we could bring somebody in.